one accord. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right, are we set? Okay. Um, we've had a break in our series, and uh, so we're really back to the, and we're recording it, uh, the Gathering Storm series, which addresses the challenges that Jewish and Christian households are facing as we move into a more and more secular area era and less of a uh, religious worldview perspective. Uh, I suggested earlier that the behavioral sciences, anthropology, sociology, and psychology have given us an alternative to God creating us through evolution, an alternative to our um, problems based on sin to problems based on mental illness. Uh, Today is World Mental Illness Day, whatever that means. Uh, And uh, the, uh, the third part of that is that we don't need heaven, we don't need to wait for heaven, because we can make a utopia here on earth. Those, uh, those perspectives, secular and religious, are quite different. And when you add to that post-modernity with our highly individualized experience, perception, and no real truth, just my truth and your truth, um, we really run into some serious problems. So the last time I talked, that was three weeks ago, I talked about the biblical concept of nations versus the secular concept of race. Uh, And we talked a little bit about racism. What I want to do today is talk about the idea of oppression from a biblical and secular perspectives. To do that, there's some passages we need to look at. First one is Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 to 9. So if you'll turn there, uh, we'll take a look at that. I'm trying to get away from my notes and back to uh, uh, my uh, face-to-face preaching. Very hard for me to do, but I'm getting there. Uh, We'll see how that goes. Uh, You shall not bear false report. Do not join your hand with the wicked man to be a malicious witness. Do not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet an enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you will surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless, um, uh, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall release it with him. You shall not pervert justice due to the needy brother in his dispute. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. You shall not take a bribe, for bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you were a stranger in the land of Egypt. Now, this passage um, in chapter 23, the book of Exodus itself, really gives us the major commandments in, in uh, chapter 20, that what we call the Ten Commandments. Then following that, in the following chapters, details of how to apply those commandments are given in various sample situations. 
When we get to chapter 23, our focus really here is on verse 9. After giving several warnings about perverting justice, it says, You shall not oppress a stranger. Uh, this word stranger here, ger in the uh, in Hebrew and goy in, in Yiddish, that where we get the idea of those people who were made into de- separate nations at Babel by God. And then what we have here is as God is establishing Israel as the nation that will be a light to those nations, one culture that he's created to walk according to his ways and his statutes and his commandments so that the other nations will see his glory and see his wisdom. Uh, He is telling them specifically not to oppress the stranger. And he says that this is because you know exactly what that feels like because you went through that when you were in Egypt. Uh, Now, it's important to understand that there are others that are not to be oppressed. And that includes widows, orphans, and the poor. And you will hear over and over in the scriptures those categories that are also found in the secular world, but those categories that are specific to God, these are the vulnerable community people that I want you to help. They're vulnerable in society. They're easily oppressed by those who would seek to oppress somebody. So I want you to turn back one chapter to chapter 22. I'm going to pick it up at verse 21 because I want you to see this as more than just the issue of the stranger, though that's clearly here. It's also these vulnerable groups So he says in verse 21, You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you are a stranger in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and he cries out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to my people... To the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets down. For that is his only covering and his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. So I want you to catch... A very important notion, and that is that God is telling Israel that they are to be an example of this, that they are to watch out and care for the poor, they are to care for the widow, they are to care for the the, uh, uh, orphan and the stranger. He's going to include the Levite because they don't have their own possessions and property. But the idea is that the vulnerable among us we're supposed to take care of, uh, and that is not only a commandment related to your own, but the stranger is included in that framework. I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus gave the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, because he was, he was putting this beyond just the community of Israel. Um, Now, it's very important that we understand something because as the secular community addresses these same things, 
How do we deal with the poor? How do we deal with single-parent families? How do we deal with people who have needs? What, what do we do with this? We'll talk next week about some extra categories that have been added, but I want to focus on these today. One of the, one of the problems here is, do we deal with this at a macro level, which is what most of the current political framework is, or do we do it on the individual level? And I'm going to suggest that it's the individual, and there is a danger when you take it beyond the individual level that I want to address today. So I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 18. We're going to spend a little time there. This is related to the issue of what people call social justice. Here we want to look at what is biblical justice, right? So, chapter 18 of Ezekiel, verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, declares the Lord, God, you, sh- you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. This is really important. They have got the idea that there is some kind of generational curse or some kind of generational continuity of guilt and, and therefore what happens by the fathers can be reprimanded onto the children. And God says, I don't want to hear this anymore. I still hear Christians using these verses out of context to say that that's the way it is, and it's not the way it is, but it's part of the way the secular world is beginning to think. So here's what he says. As I live, declares the Lord, verse 3, you you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. But if a man is righteous and he practices righteousness and justice and does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual period, if a man does not oppress anyone but but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. If he does not lend money on interest or take an increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity and executes true justice between man and man, if he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and he will surely live, declares the Lord. Then he may have a violent son who sheds blood, and who does any of these things to a brother. Though he himself did not do any of these things, that is, he even eats at the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, but lifts up his eye to the idol and commits abominations and lends money on interest and takes increase, will he live? He will not live. He has committed these abominations. He will surely be put to death. His blood shall be on his own head. Now behold, he has a son who has has observed all his father's sins, which he has committed. 
and observing does not do likewise. He does not eat on the mountain shrine or lift up his eye to the idols uh, or defile his neighbor's wife or oppress anyone or retain a pledge or commit robbery. But he gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing, he keeps his hand from the uh, he keeps his hand from the poor. Does not take interest or increase, but executes my ordinances and walks in my statutes. He will not die for his father's iniquity; he will surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among his people, he will die for his iniquity. Now, I want you to catch this: we're, we're given three people. The first guy walks in righteousness following God, and God says he will live. Then you've got the guy who is violating all of it, and God says he will not live. And then the guy who is violating all this has a son who sees his father doing evil and says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to walk in the ways of the Lord, and the Lord says he will live. I want you to catch that this is about your sin, and about the individual, not the sin of your parents, not the sin of your ancestors, and that kind of thing. Now, where there is a wrong that has been done in the past, and we have a way to fix it, we should try to fix it. But we don't bear guilt for our fathers or our grandfathers or our ancestors that way. We bear guilt for what we're doing. And our children will not bear our righteousness or our guilt, for they'll have to walk with God on their own. Now, I want you to catch what happens in this context. The secular world and the proponent of social justice are group-focused. They consider people to be responsible for past abuse and past oppression if they can trace it to the present through race, gender, or class. This is faulty thinking, and it goes against the scriptures. I believe it also goes against the American foundational notion of equal protection under the law. The shift in American law towards protected groups, while well-intentioned, and I believe it's very well-intentioned, has established less justice for some because they belong to a group that is considered historically to be an oppressor group. That means if your ancestors were oppressors, You are as well. And this is tied to the notion of systemic racism and inequity. Now, while I think there is institutional racism that's still structured in that we need to undo, and I'll talk more about that later, that's that's an American burden, and the American church has that burden. I'm all for that. I am not for saying that because somebody's ancestors did evil, they are evil as well. And that's coming out not in uh, all cases, but in many cases where people are making use of this kind of groupthink mentality. So, uh, it's being tied to a concept that I'll talk about later, uh, not today, but later, of white supremacy. Now, when you paint all members of a group with any evil action for one of their members, that's not good. And to make it even worse, they will do that with some groups, if the group was seen as oppressors. However, if you do evil and you are of a group that was oppressed, it's now either excused or dismissed because you're not responsible, because your ancestors were oppressed. Um, 
that doesn't even get suggested in the biblical text. So let's go back to Ezekiel 18 and pick it up at verse 19. Yet you say, why should not the Son bear the punishment for the Father's iniquity? When the Son has practiced justice and righteousness, and he has observed my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person whose sins will die, the Son will not bear punishment for the Father's iniquity. Nor will the Father bear the punishment for the Son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. But if the wicked man turns from his sin, which he has committed, and observes all my statutes and practices, justice and righteous, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All the transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him, because he is righteous, because of the righteousness which he has practiced, he will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? No, rather that he should turn from his ways and live. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery which he has committed and his sin which he has committed. For them he will die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? When a righteous man turns from his righteousness, commits iniquity and dies because of it, for his iniquity which he has committed, he will die. Again, when the wicked man turns away from his wickedness which he has committed and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions um, which he had committed. He shall live and not die. The house of the Israel says, the way of the Lord is not right. Are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not that your ways are not right? Therefore I will judge you, house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, O Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. Now, this thing really reinforces a number of things that we are losing in this culture. We are going back sometimes years and years and years to somebody who has done evil and has turned from it, repented, maybe even done some restitution, and gone forward, and we're still punishing them for the past. That's not a biblical concept. In the same way, you don't justify somebody's current evil because they did good in the past. And one of the problems that we have in this society right now is this tying everything to groups and not the individual behavior, and then not letting the evil of the past be forgiven, and justifying the evil of the present because of the past. And that is dangerous. So, Israel says, God, you're not right, and God says, oh yes, I am, right? 
I think we need to keep that in mind. The secular mindset and many who have embraced social justice are attempting to right all the wrongs here and now. And they believe the answer to systemic problems like race and poverty is found in policy and government control. And they think redistribution will render a better world. I think that's a false promise. I really think God has told us not to do these things primarily through the government, but by primarily through our own everyday behavior. So with that, I want you to turn to uh, Malachi. I'll forego the temptation to talk about the Italian prophet Malachi. And we'll talk about Malachi. Chapter 3, and this is a text you know very well, but it's important that we uh, tie it in here. God says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now I know this is seen as prophetic of John the Baptist and Jesus coming. I think that's true. But this is really looking at the fullness of what we would call the second coming and what Israel would call the coming of the Messianic kingdom and the Messiah. And so he says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and the former days. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, and those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the wage earner in his in his wages, the, win, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside from the foreigner who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, really important to catch that what we're told here in Malachi is that there's a heart problem. There's a need for us to change our heart, as Ezekiel had said, and to walk in the ways of the Lord. That's how we will repair the world until he comes and brings the full restoration. And so that ties into the book of Micah, a passage you're very familiar with. Chapter 6. Verse 6, what shall I come, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice and love kindness or mercy and walk humbly with your God. One of the things that really bothers me in the church is that we have a tendency to only care about being saved and being Americans. And the reality is we should 
be fearful of the Lord, scandalized by the sins of our past, turn and make restitution wherever we can, and begin to walk in holiness and righteousness at the level that we're able to, and we certainly can't do it fully because we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we should be striving to do that so that we care for the poor and the widow and the orphan, and we try to mend those things that are damaged in the context of this of this world. The danger here is that the battle is not a political one and it's not one that is about Democrats or Republicans or, or that kind of thing. So I want to go to my other passage I put in the bulletin, which is James chapter 2. Because I think this is an area where we have failed as well. James chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you sit over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. It is not the rich, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into the court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing good. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of it all. And he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. They shall obtain mercy. Really important for us to understand that James is reminding us that there is a, there is a, um, group, he calls them here the rich. He's talking about the powerful. He's talking about the elites. They're the ones who oppress people. All of the systemic things that we need to correct in this culture are put in place by the elites. And when we have a, a revolution, we just get a new set of elites. And then the oppression happens again. We're not going to solve oppression by government and by policy. We're going to do it by being born again, being transformed by the renewing of our mind, doing restitution where we can, and moving forward in righteousness and holiness. I love what James says when he says, Hasn't God chosen the poor to be rich in faith 
It reminds me of my last text, which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's one of my favorite texts. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. He's talking about the elites. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And indeed, Jews ask for a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Israel, and foolishness to the Gentiles. To those who are called, however, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is Stronger than men. Now my favorite part right here, 26. Consider your calling, brethren. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen that the things that are not, and the things that are not, that he may nullify the things that are, or that think they are, so that no one may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Notice the order there. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Not redemption and then those other things are, you know, if you want them. That's part of it. So let, so just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Uh, I always talk about God's special Olympics, right? He takes the people who can't run and makes them the winner of the race. He, he compensates for our weakness and he pushes back against our arrogance. The scripture is very clear that God gives grace to the humble, but the haughty, the wise, he knows them from afar. Right? God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And we should do the same thing. I know that there are people well-meaningly think that we can reconstruct the government system and the social systems and make it perfect. I fear we will create something even worse than has happened so far because our focus is not on the Lord and on walking humbly and realizing that we're all brothers and sisters and we need to, those of us who are strong, need to bear the infirmities of the weak. And that's really what when you find yourself in an advantage, you use that advantage for those who are disadvantaged rather than this battle between who we're going to make feel guilty for the past or the, their ancestry or their father. All of that is not good thinking and it's really becoming part 
of the cultural secular mindset, I'm afraid it will find its way among God's people. I listened to a uh, webinar this week from Christianity Today on critical race theory. I was, I was disappointed. I was not bothered so much by what they said as I was bothered by what they didn't say. Too much of what they said when they quoted scripture was to justify uh, this current theoretical framework rather than to see it in its context. Um, and while I think they, um, they meant well, I, I was quite bothered by what was said. So that's it for me. I'm going to next week talk about some areas that are really more of a conflict. Everybody agrees we should help the poor. The question is, how do we do it? Everyone believes we should help the, the, the widows and the orphans. We need to find some way to help people who are struggling to come into this country. Our battle is, how do we do it? But there are new groups related to gender and sexuality that really are in conflict with some biblical categories that we have to talk about. And I'm going to deal with those next week. So let's pray.